0: A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So... You, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also <coughs> heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, "Eloi, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks Shirley and uh, good day everyone, nice to to see you. it would be really handy if you do have that part of the Bible open, Mark chapter 15, page 1066. You might want to grab that. And helpful too will be one of these outlines you should have received on the way in. Uh, if nothing else, it will be, uh, perform the function of a pretty good timekeeper as to where we're up to uh, tonight. And as you look at that, on the bottom of the page you'll notice a prayer. Um, I'd love you to know in advance that prayer is there. At the end of our time, in just sort of 20, 25 minutes from now, I'm going to invite us to pray that prayer just silently in your mind. Uh, for some of you, it'll be a prayer of recommitment. Um, so, yes, this is what I want to keep doing. But for some of you, this might be the first time you've prayed a prayer like this. We won't want to ambush you with it. We want want you to know uh, that it's there. So, that's on its way. Okay, I'm going to pray again. We're going to look at that great uh, part of the Bible. Let's do it. Now, Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for your wonderful word to us. We pray that you'd help me tonight to communicate it Uh, with clarity and we pray that for all of us, you'd help us to hear it clearly. And particularly tonight, would you um, help us to push away all the kind of preconceptions, uh, the things we've already made up in our mind and simply listen to you from this part of your word as to what you reveal about yourself. We pray uh, that Jesus alone would be honoured. Amen. A couple of years ago, uh, we ran a a mission at Deakin University, which we've heard a lot about uh, tonight, under the title, If I Were God... Uh, and we covered the campus with, with posters beginning with the sentence, If I were God, I'd. Uh, and we invited people all over the campus to write on those posters and to finish that sentence. Um, and all over the campus, that's what they did. They told us what they would do if they were God. And here's some of what they said. One, if I were God, I'd uncreate, voo which if you can remember far back to the Soccer World Cup a few years ago, you'll uh, certainly remember why. Uh, Two, if I were God, I'd kill all magpies. Uh, Do you know how many times I've been swooped by those uh, silly, slightly paraphrased uh, things? Three, I'd get the answers to next week's maths test. Um, You wouldn't say they're shooting too high there. Uh, Four, I'd get an iPhone and a classy girlfriend, maybe. I going to suggest a couple of priority issues going on for that uh, poor young man. And number five, and from memory, I think, voted the number one response at Deakin University, if I were God, I'd make it rain hot dogs. Now, now I should admit there were one or two slightly more serious than those, but for the most part, that's what we got. Um, and the reason I tell you, well, it's in part so you know what we're working with over at Deakin University, so please do pray for us. Um, <laughs> but mostly it's because as we start our time together, I want to ask, can you do any better? See, I want you to imagine for a moment that you had all the power of God at your disposal. And I want to ask, what would you do? Uncreate, boo destroy all swooping magpies, destroy all your enemies. See, imagine for a moment that your wish would come true, that your will would be done, that you could do whatever you wanted. What would you do? Can you imagine? I'm not going to ask you what it is, you can imagine whatever you like. Can you imagine? Because if you can, what I want you to do is to hold that thought and then look again at the passage there in front of you and compare your answer. Look again at the one Christians are convinced really did have all the power of God at his disposal And then look how he finished that sentence. See, I don't know what you thought about God before you came in here tonight, or for that matter, if you're a visitor, what you thought Christians thought about God before you came here tonight. Maybe it's that that kind of Simpsons type type God, you know, the one, the doddery old grandfather with the long white beard, who'd really love to help and to be involved but simply uh, can't. Or or maybe it's more the, the Dawkins type God, the the one he calls the the great surveillance camera in the sky, you know, keeping his impersonal distance, keeping his impersonal scorecard. Or maybe it's just the God of make-believe, that kind of Santa Claus meets Tooth Fairy meets Easter Bunny type God. You have no idea what you thought before you came here tonight, but can I say, whatever it was, by the time you go home, please understand that the, that the Christian friends or family who loved you enough to go out on a limb and invite you here to know when they think about God, they think of this, of this God, of the God who far from pathetically just stands on the sidelines or far from aggressively just looks down his nose or, or far from fictitiously just exists in their minds, they believe in the real God who entered into the world to die for the world. They believe in the God who, as it says in your outlines, in Christ was crucified for you as king. Painfully, shamefully, winning, willingly, and innocently. You know, they say uh, that the Romans had various uh, patterns of execution, but of all of them, crucifixion was the worst. It was reserved for scumbags and non-citizens. And basically, it was execution and torture. In fact, even more than that, it was execution by torture. Now, thankfully, you notice, unlike so many of the movie kind of reenactments, Mark spares us the details. He simply says, can you see it there? Sentence 24, verse 24, do you see it? And they crucified him. Friends, don't let that fool you. Don't think for a moment that this is a a doddle. No, this was unbelievable pain. Cicero, Roman state from the time, called it the most cruel and disgusting punishment. Josephus, the Jewish historian, called it the most pitiable of all forms of death. See, this was terrible, awful pain. And this was terrible, awful shame. See, as much as the crucifixion was designed for maximum pain, even more, it was designed for maximum shame: stripping you naked, exposing you in public, putting you through agony in the face of your enemies, usually at a, a crossroads or a highway, so most people could see you. Crucifixion was designed to make you a joke, to make you a laughing stock. And friends, did you see in that passage, the one there in front of you, did you see how it did do that for Jesus? Did you see that uh, sentence 16, how in the headquarters of the soldiers, the whole company gathered to humiliate Jesus, to, to spit on him, to, to strip him, to mock him? Did you see that uh, verse 26, the, the sarcastic charge they, they whacked above his head? Did, did you see how on the cross, everyone insulted him? From there, sentence 29, of those passing by to To sentence 31, that the leaders of religion, even 32, those dying with him, they all heap insults upon him. They all kick him while he's down. I heard one preacher say humanity, if it could just get close enough, would stab its own maker a thousand times. And do you see, that's what's happening. Stabbing with pain stabbing with shame, and yet incredibly, amazingly, if you know anything of the story before this, this is exactly what Jesus knew would happen. That's exactly what Jesus willingly took. I don't know about you, but it's one of the problems I have with with pretty much every single movie reenactment I've ever seen of the cross. See, in every one, of you notice, Jesus ends up looking like some hapless, helpless victim. Just this is kind of accident of history, wrong place, wrong time. But, but please understand this was no accident. Jesus willingly chose this See far better, I think is the C.S. Lewis description of the cross and the Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe I don't know if you see it. But in this particular scene where Aslan, the, the Jesus figure, the, the great, undefeatable lion, strides the stone table, strides toward his death, his, his enemies jeering, calling for his blood, yet none of them, not one, can touch him until he Says so. And friends, I want to say that's what's happening here in the passage you have in front of you. Jesus willingly chose this. and yet, Just one of the things that tells you that, I don't know if you've noticed, is Jesus' silence in the scene. See, I wonder when it was read for us, did you notice just how little Jesus speaks in the passage there in front of you, just how little he, he protests. It's actually really weird. See, I wonder if you can imagine for a moment yourself in Jesus' shoes, facing what he faced, accused as he's he's accused. Or, Or forget your imagination. What do you do when you're accused? Or better yet, when you're falsely accused, what do you do? Well, I take it you do exactly what I did. Uh, just a little while back, I was riding home from uni, uh, doing the right thing, riding up a hill away from the campus, when I was accused with a kind of blast of the horn and a shake of the fist. Falsely accused, well, just innocently riding my bike. So, what did I do? Well, I did what you would do I chased them. <laughs> And I caught them. And I stopped them. And I ranted. And I raved. And I protested my innocence. Actually, it's not entirely true. I did chase them. But pretty much everything after that was just in my head. <laughs> it was actually quite pathetic in you know, a red face. <laughs> But that's what we do, isn't it? Or, or at least what we, we, we want to do. Whenever we are accused and out of control, but I wonder, did you notice, that's not what Jesus does because that's not what Jesus is. He is in complete control. He chose this. The question, of course, is Why? No, why? Well, one thing's clear, it's not because he deserved it. It's not like he knew he was guilty and so resigned himself to death. You can could, you could imagine it, couldn't you? The kind of death row doomed, you know, finally facing justice, finally admitting guilt. But see, that can't be Jesus, can it? After all, he is entirely innocent. Now, if you read the account of his life leading up to this, you'd already know that. But did you see, even in this chapter, three times, Pilate the judge declares him not guilty. Did you see it? It's there in um, sentence 10, and then sentence 14, and sort of in sentence 15 as well. Why, Pilate asks? What evil has he done? Why, Pilate asks? The man is clearly innocent. And so, again, we ask, just as Jesus himself will ask there, verse 30, my my God, my God, why? Why would God forsake God? Why would innocent Jesus willingly die? Do you know the answer? The, The consistently repeated, Answer from the Bible, it was for you, for me, for us. That is, it was in our place and for our sake. You see, as much as we hate this idea, according to the Bible, you and I sit already condemned on death row. Facing a godless death because we lived a godless life, but, but see, then one day we hear it—the the, the rattling of keys, the, the turning of a lock, the, the swinging open of the doors, and the declaration, "You're free." Why? We, how? We ask. Because another has come to, well, take your place. You see, it's just as he did for Barabbas. Did you notice there, right toward the start, um, sentence six, verse six? Guilty Barabbas, he walks free. Innocent Jesus, it takes his place. Guilty me, I walk free. Innocent Jesus takes my place. Guilty you, you walk free. Innocent Jesus takes your place. if you will let him, if you will trust him. I, I became a Christian when I was 21 and the way it was explained to me is this. It was like this, this is me. It's a rough representation, but this is me. And, and the light there is God. And, and here's how I, was, how I was made to live in, in perfect, unhindered relationship with God. Him, the God who gives me everything. Me, the child who receives it with thanks. But but the problem is, I didn't. And for that matter, you don't. We we stopped receiving his gifts with thanks. We we stopped treating him as God. We we quietly close our palm and, and just gently... Walk away. We, we, we take the gifts he gives, but we ignore the God, the giver. And see, without even realising it, and none of us, I assume, realise we're doing this, we, we build a wall between us and God. A wall that attracts his anger. A wall that attracts his punishment. A wall that will send us to hell. But then, this same loving God, he sends his son this same loving God sends his son Jesus who always lives in unhindered, perfect relationship with his father. He lives the life we should have lived but then he dies the death we should have died. He, he takes our place and he takes our walls so that we can again be right with God. And you see, that's what he does at the cross for all who trust in him. That's what he'll do by his cross for you if you'll trust in him. But still, I want to say it might be that some of you are sitting here right now and this would be, I I expect this is probably happening right here in the room thinking to yourself, you have got to be kidding. I mean, you've got to be joking. That has got to be about one of the stupidest things I have ever heard. And can I say, if that's you, I want to say I completely understand, you're not alone. In fact, if you look again at that passage, that's pretty much what, well, they thought as they stood around the cross. Have again, Look again there, sentence 31. What do they say? <laughs> he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let, 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 let this, oh, this Messiah, King of Israel... Come down from the cross now, so that we might see and believe. In other words, you want me to call you saver? Well, here's my deal. Come down, save yourself. You want me to call you ruler? Here's my deal. Rule that cross. And I don't know about you, but I want to say, I actually think their logic's pretty good. After all, isn't that pretty much what the flight attendants tell you? in the unlikely event of the non-traditional landing. Isn't that what your, your swimming teacher told you? If you ever saw a friend drowning in the centre of the pool, you've got to help yourself before you can help someone else. You've got to save yourself before you can save them. It's pretty much just how it works. Unless, unless that is, The only way you can help the other is by not helping yourself. The only way you can save the other is by not saving yourself. And you see, friends, it was the only (coughs) way. I don't know about you. reminds me of a story of Kimberly Deer. I don't know if you've, you've heard of it. I don't know if you've heard Kim Deer's story. Um, it goes on July 29, 2006, not that long ago. Uh, 21-year-old Kimberly Deer from right here in Melbourne actually uh, climbed aboard a plane in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. The, the, the plan, they say, was a, a tandem skydiving lesson with final-year engineering student uh, named Robert Cook. But apparently, uh, so they say, uh, a few moments after takeoff, it, it soon became clear things. Uh, were going horribly wrong. Uh, it soon became clear that the, the plane was going uh, to crash. So, so, what did Robert do? Well, they say, in fact, Kimberly said, he calmly told her what was about to happen. Then he pulled her close, connected his harness to hers and as the plane nosedived down toward the ground, he turned his body under hers so that he would take the impact. And he did take the impact. And Kimberly survived. And Robert died. Kimberly survived because. Robert died. And friends, do you see, multiply that by about a million and that's what Jesus did for you. And, and if that's not incredible enough, that's what Jesus did for you as your king. See, if you notice there, but there's the two parts of the mocking of the leaders there but in the sentence 31, did you see? The first mocks his rescue, the second mocks his rule. The first doubts him saviour, the second doubts him king and yet the great irony is that there on that cross in the exact moment of their mocking, God is establishing Jesus as both. You know, in his historical account there of Jesus' death you have in Mark, not once in the first 14 chapters is the word king used of Jesus. But now in this chapter... How many times is it used? Six. Zero from 14 in the chapters up to this. Six from one, now that we're here. Now, now, admittedly, most of those are saying it, don't mean it for themselves, but I want to say on every occasion, God does. God put that word in their mouths at this moment for good reason. Why? Why? Because here on his cross, Jesus is crowned. A little Kermit moment there. Here in his death, he's established as king. And friends, you see, when he rises again, he declares it to the world. Now, of course, the soldiers joke with the, the purple robe, did you see it there, and the, and the crown of thorns and the falling to their knees. And the, yeah. But God meant it for real. That's exactly what everyone should have been doing as they gathered round that cross. Falling to their knees and worshipping the king who would even die for them. See friends, this, this is no, this is no a protected US president just cruising in the back of the limo. You know, behind the bulletproof glass, behind the secret service, them running alongside, them taking the bullet, him nice and safe. This even is not some crusty queen. Not any saying any comments about our wonderful queen. This is not some crusty queen. You know, Atop the royal throne, above the royal stairs, far from the people, serve from the people. No, this is God himself, the king of all kings, who gave his life to protect his people and serve his people and save his people. You see, I don't know what you thought about God before you came here tonight or what you thought Christians thought about God before you came here tonight. Friends, can I say as you go, please understand that this is it. This is the God that Christians believe in. The God who far better than just uncreate voo voo or make it rain hot dogs. They believe in this God. The God who in Christ was crucified for you as King. And friends, we want to give you a chance to respond to that tonight. Now, now for some of you, I suspect that response will look like grabbing one of these little books, which John will talk about later, and reading some more, the historical account of the person of Jesus. For others, I hope, in fact, for many of us, it'll be conversations over coffee and milkshakes in just a little while. But, But for some of you, especially, I think, if you've been thinking about this for a while and sitting in here with us for a while, we hope today's the day that you want to say yes to this and yes to Jesus. And friends, can I say, if that's you, one simple way to do it is just to simply speak to God. To simply say to him, sorry, thank you, please. To say, you sit there on your the outlines there at the bottom, to say, dear God, I'm sorry that I've rejected you and ignored you and forgotten you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place, to make me right with you. Please help me from now on to live for you by living for him. Now, friends, if, if that's a prayer you do want to pray, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say that again slowly sort of clause by clause, line by line. And if you want to say it to God, then I really want to encourage you in the quietness of your mind, just between you and God, you repeat those words to him from you. And and friends, if this is not a prayer you want to pray right now, then can I encourage you in the moment we're about to take to in the silence of your mind say whatever it is you want to say to God, whatever you want. Because I want to tell you, he's big enough, He can cope with whatever you want to say, so just say it. But either way, let's take a moment now, quiet to respect any of those who would like to pray and let's pray. Let's do it. Dear God, I'm sorry that I have rejected you and ignored you and forgotten you. Thank you so much for sending Jesus to die in my place to make me right with you please help me from now on to live for you by living for him Amen